Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're bringing you one of our grand round talks from Ashley Shreves on dying in the ED. Ashley's an EM doc who is fellowship trained in palliative care and works at the St. Luke's Roosevelt Program in New York City. Before we get to the talk, just a reminder to come on over to the Core EM site at coreem.net and check out all the great core content we have featured there. Check out and like our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Now, on to Ashley's talk. It's a little intimidating coming here to talk about healthcare because you have some people in your faculty who are really experts in this area, and you're very lucky about that. So I don't know if I'm going to add much to the knowledge base you already have, but I will certainly try so, you know, I think there's always, I know people are having like an internal eye roll right now. Not all of you, but I'm sure there are some of you in the room who are like, why is she talking about dying, right? Like, I went into emergency medicine to save lives. This is somebody else's job. I'm not a hospice nurse. I'm not a palliative care doctor. I'm not an internal medicine doctor. I don't want to do this. I don't have to learn about this. And not only that, I don't have the time to deal with this. Even if I care about these issues, I've got like a million other competing demands on my shifts. Um, and this is one of those things that um, I just don't have time for. I'm like, I get that. I get all of those frustrations. But this is really, this is the problem with that mentality. Uh, this is one of those studies where, like, you don't really need to read the study. You just look at the, the title and you get all the information and the meaning from it. Has anyone ever seen this before? Right? So, like, this is the problem with that. It's like, you can't say, like, I don't really like badge bleeding and I don't want to, like, do quite badge bleeders. I just don't do them. You know, like, that's just not part of my arsenal. I guess, like, are they coming? Right? They're all coming. you got to know that. Like, if you didn't go into obstetrics, you still have to know how to manage first trimester preg badge bleeders. It, and it's the same thing with this. Like, they're coming whether you like it or not. Furthermore, you in this room really need to know, and I hope I can make a case for that. Has anyone ever heard of the Dartmouth Institute? for health policy and everyone, okay. Um, I'm impressed, I, I hadn't heard of it. Uh, so the Dartmouth Institute, they're famous for a lot of things, but they issue these reports where they, they actually quantify uh, variation in healthcare utilization across regions um, and institutions. And they're sort of famous, you've probably all heard about the fact that in some areas of the country, every kid gets their tonsils out, and in other areas of the country, no kids do. And it's, strangely associated with the number of ENTs in the area. Um, so all of that stuff that you've heard, that's all, that's from like this group and what they've done. So they did a report on trends and variation in life care. And they did lots of fun maps. It's like, you will read this thing for days and days and days. It's actually fascinating reading. Um, but this is one of the, the things they looked at is the, the percentage of chronically ill Medicare patients who die in the hospital. And when they say severe chronic illness, this is, they actually were talking about not just like chronic illness like COPD, CHF, but dementia, cancer patients, they all got locked into this group. So it's people over 65. And you can see there's remarkable variation. So if you're like the really dark, it's like 49, 50%. To the really light, it's like 12%. So you could imagine like if we worked in Utah, we really shouldn't be talking about this issue, right? If we worked in Utah, like, you're really not going to see that many people coming into the ED in the hospital at the end of life. It's very unusual there. It's very unusual in Oregon. So what do you think the region was in the country that had the highest percentage of people dying in the hospital? So this Manhattan is literally the highest region in the whole country for people coming into the hospital and dying actually in the hospital, and they have an underlying severe chronic illness. 
right? So if we were in Utah, you could make the case to me like, oh, I don't really need to do this. Well, like you, if you're especially if you're going to practice in this environment, and then I'm going to give you even further information that's going to blow your mind. So academic institutions, this is a list of the fancy ones, like the really good, high, you know, high quality academic institutions they rank. Um, so that's the top, and that's the worst. Howard University is the worst. You're number seven, and I could make fun of you, except that Sinai is number <laughs> So it's okay for me to point this out. Now, the last set of data they have is 2007 in this report, but I don't think things have changed that dramatically in the last eight years. You can see, particularly embarrassing about Sinai, because we have one of the oldest and best healthcare departments in the country, um, but it's almost like a reason why we needed a really good healthcare department there, because we have this, 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 is, this is what we're up against. So you can see it's like Mount Sinai, UMDMJ, NYU, New York Presbyterian, Upstate, right? So you can, it's, yeah, the data. And what they're sort of looking at there is like the patients that like always go to NYU or always go to Mount Sinai. So we need to know this, we in this room like really need to know how to care for this population. So how are we doing right now in emergency medicine? Well, I'm going to summarize the data for you and I'll show you a little bit of the data. Um, I think most of these patients get pretty bad care. Um, I think we don't really feel comfortable comfortable taking care of them and that we want more training. So this is from this is one of my favorite studies. It was actually like one of the first pieces of literature that I ever saw um, that was on the topic of emergency medicine and palliative care. It was actually published out of a UK emergency department, but similar challenges. And they looked at like these two different trajectories of people dying in the ED, like the trauma patient that everyone's all fired up about and talking about the whole day. And then like the patient who comes in with advanced dementia, advanced cancer who's dying. And they interviewed the family members and the patients and asked them how they felt. Did you feel cared for? And they used words like, we felt like second-class citizens. And we felt neglected. Uh, we felt ignored. You know, it, it's like really wrenching to read these descriptions of the care they got. Um, so the care is pretty bad, I think, for these patients. Um, this is a figure from a study that was done um, out of Mount Sinai interviewing emergency medicine residents about how they feel about the various healthcare competencies and they feel least comfortable with the patient's sort of symptom management at the end of life and this other topic, right, withholding, withdrawing, life-sustaining treatment. Uh, I don't know if that feels consistent with you. That, that certainly was, were the areas that I felt the least comfortable with. Um, and then this is a table from another study interviewing palliative care providers about areas of improvement, ways to improve healthcare and ED. I love this table because they asked them, what areas can you improve? And you can see the number one thing is they're like, the way that we can improve it is if the outpatient providers improve. So that was like our number one thing. But then number two and number three, again, is sort of this communication skills training and symptom management training for sort of end of life issues. So I, I talk a lot about this, but you can see sort of there's two big buckets that I think healthcare could fit into. The, the big bucket of talking about goals of care, how do you talk to people about intubation and code status and all that. And I think I've talked to this group about that before. And, um, hopefully you have all that information now. Uh, and then there's like the other big bucket, which is, okay, they say they don't want to be intubated, and now they're dying, and like, now what? So now you're sitting there with this dying patient, and you've got to like manage their end-of-life symptoms and sort of troubleshoot what to do next. And so we're going to do a little bit of a dying, an EM dying boot camp um, for that, that sort of big pocket of palliative care issues. So we're going to do a little refresher on what it means to be dying, talk about some of the unique symptom issues that are going to come up, and then give you some language to use to communicate with families and patients about, about your management that's going to be kind of unique and different than the way that you manage those symptoms and people who are dying. So 
One of my favorite graphs of all time, I love it. Um, again, burn it into your brain, it will help you understand and contextualize the acute presentations that you've seen in your ED. It's important for us to review it when we're going to talk about end-of-life symptom management, and the reason is because I want you to be sure you're dealing with a dying patient before you shift over into your brain on like end-of-life symptom management. So you can get into a little bit of trouble there and thinking somebody's dying, and you're kind of giving them the dying person treatment, and they're not actually a dying patient. So you've got to sort of get that piece right before we can get the rest of it right, and so I just want to do a quick refresher on that. So these are the four big broad categories of how people die. This is the last year of life, on the, on the x-axis and the y-axis is function. And how do they measure function in these studies? ADLs. Yeah, ADLs. And what are ADLs? Like, give me an ADL. Shout it out. Getting dressed. Someone said going to the bathroom, so like toileting. What else? Eating. Eating. Yeah, so it's like a measure of your ability to take care of yourself, right? And how your disease is affecting your quality of life, sort of. Right? So, sudden death, we think that's how everybody dies in the ED. That's actually not it's like the way 15% of people die. They're like fine and they drop dead on the street. So that's actually a rare way that people die. Most people, they have, they're on one of these trajectories here. So this one here, terminal illness, right? They do incredibly well. This is, uh, what, what disease is terminal illness represent? Cancer. They do really, really well until all of a sudden they don't. And um, when they start to lose the ability to take care of themselves and become weaker because of their cancer, it's always a marker of the beginning of the end for them. Um, and, and it's usually a pretty steep decline. And when patients with cancer can no longer get out of bed, um, on average, how long do they have? Weeks. Weeks. So maximum, give me a maximum number of time they have. Someone said six months. So it's, so it's generally on average about two months. So once patients with cancer are no longer able to get out of bed, and they're sort of on the steep part of this curve, and some people live much shorter, but few people live longer than, than two months um, when they're sort of at that, at that stage. Then you have your organ failure patients, those are your CHF and COPD patients who have this sort of thing, right? So like they come in and like they're gonna die, they're in the ICU, everyone tells them they're dying, tells the family to withdraw care, blah, 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 blah. And then the patient goes to subacute rehab and does great. And then you come in, you see the patient here, you're like, no, 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 this time they're gonna die. I'm really, really, really positive. And the family's like, yeah, uh -huh, they said that last time. And then they leave the hospital again and do great. Not great, not ever like as well as they did before, but they do, they do pretty well. Um, and so it's really, really hard in that group to actually tell them that they're dying. Um, it can be their clues, right, if they're needing higher levels of outpatient care, they used to live at home, now they have to live in a long-term care facility and whatnot. It's really, 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 really hard in the ED to tell a patient who's got CHF or CBD that they're dying, um, and I rarely do it. Um, it's not that you can't have a goals of care conversation with them and decide to withdraw or withhold certain treatments, um, but it's hard to sort of use that word, and I don't do it as often. I do it a lot with this population, and I do it a lot with this population, which is what? Who, who's that? Dementia. Dementia, right? So they have like really poor function for the last year of their life, and they have this very slow decline. And each of these little these little blips here, what does this typically represent? What's happening there? Why are they getting worse? What often happens? What do you see them in your uniform? They fall, they have a, someone say, do you say infection? They get an infection, they get, yeah. So they, they have nutrition problems, they have infections, they have falls. And for me, like, so that's what marks the end of their life. When they start to have sort of cycle in and out, um, they already have poor function and they start to get these problems, um, they're dying. 
thing to keep in mind is most of the end-of-life literature about symptom management is done in this population here. We're kind of extrapolating out. Okay, so that being said, now we're going to get into um, uh, some specific cases. I'm, I'm just going to let you read this to yourself, okay? Actually, I'll, I'll read that. I'll help you out. Uh, so, 55-year-old female, I can't help myself, uh, who's metastatic ovarian These are all, by the way, based on real cases that I've seen in the last two years, with some, some modifications for you know, HIPAA purposes. So, uh, metastatic ovarian cancer, sudden onset of shortness of breath with syncope, just diagnosed with her cancer a month ago. She's still going to work, and there are plans for a major people surgery chemo. These are her vital signs. She's uncomfortable. Her lungs are clear. Rethinking. Okay. Is she is she at the end of life? Why not? Why don't you think she has metastatic cancer? Aren't they all dying? What? Still in a work. Yeah. Yeah. So she actually has a PE. Don't don't treat her like she's dying, right? <laughs> this happens. I know that sounds crazy, but it's just sort of worth like having this sort of initial case, right? Because we, I had one of my favorite patients I ever took care of in the inpatient setting. She was further along in her disease than this person, but she was still up and about, and she was still, you know, like very involved in her life. And she probably had like, I think she lived another six months after this episode, but she came for me, and everyone came down to the ER and tried to convince her to like, just go to hospice. And she's like, just turn me over my PE. And they were like, you're really good, they just take you to the ICU. And she's like, yes. And she left the hospital a week later, and she lived another five months. And, you know, not that that's, she didn't live in a few years, but uh, it, it is important, again, to, to sort of understand where somebody's in the trajectory before we start shifting. So that, that's just a, that was, that was um, a teacher. But now we'll get into the case. Okay, so this is a 65-year-old male with metastatic lung cancer, uh, progressive shortness of breath for weeks. He's diagnosed two years ago. Uh, you look at his chart, there's no more chemo plan because it's, quote, not working. You ask his wife, you ask him, he spends most of his time in bed, he's already in oxygen at home. These are his vital signs in the ER, he looks uncomfortable, he's really tachypnic. Expressions, of course, they've actually talked about enrolling in hospice, but they just haven't gotten it together yet. They have an appointment with their oncologist next week, um, but they're overwhelmed at home, right? Do you think he's at the end of life? Yes, I see people nodding. Why? What were the clues in the history? He's in bed, yeah, yeah. He's, and when was his cancer diagnosed? A couple years ago. And your oncologists aren't offering more chemo. Like when your oncologists aren't offering more chemo, like you know it's the end, right? Because like we know it's the end sometimes and they're still getting chemo. But when the oncologists have said no more chemo, like that's one of the hard stops. Because they're usually, you know, they're terrific and they really believe in these patients and they have a hard time, you know, stopping chemo. Not that they're bad people because they just, they have a hard time. Um, but when they stop, you know. So, uh, so what are we thinking about um, in terms of differential? What's going on? Progression of the cancer. Progression of the cancer. So, so I'm going to like make it really broad, right? And this is part of what we do um, at the end of life with patients is we sort of do it in terms of symptoms, right? Because you're sort of used to thinking in terms of disease and disease problems. And I'm going to tell you, like, broadly what's going on with him, but she's dyspnea. He's a lung cancer patient who's at the end of life, and he's got really dys really bad dyspnea um, that's, that's bothering him, um, and that's causing a lot of suffering for him. 
So it's a very, very, very common symptom of candelite. And depending on what type of underlying terminal disease you have, like lung cancer, it's almost like universal. Um, and other diseases, it's going to be less common. Um, but it's one of the most common symptoms. We got into the differential. Somebody said pneumonia. What else did I hear? The progression of disease. What else? Plural effusion is a really common one. What else? PE. again. Yeah, very common. What, anything else? What's up? Pericardial effusion, like acidosis, right? There's, there are a lot of things. So the thing to think about when you're at the bedside, right, because this is really hard, is, is it, so a couple things. One, is this patient dying? You've already said it, yes. Is this potentially a problem that's reversible? Yes, no. This is going to be like your branch point. And then the next branch point is, okay, maybe it's reversible, but, like, is it going to be easily reversible? Is this something that, like a pleural effusion, this person's going to need to have an invasive procedure, and it's very clear from talking to the family, like, they're done with procedures. They don't want more, more procedures. Or is this, like, a, maybe a pneumonia, and we could just put some antibiotics on there, and it's actually not going to be invasive, and we can see if it works. So part of that you have to kind of triage your head is not always knowable in the first hour of seeing somebody in PD, but sometimes it is. And then it's important, right, to sort of make that distinction because if it's not easily reversible and or it is reversible, but the amount of sort of diagnostic study and treatment and the invasiveness of it is totally inconsistent with what the patient and the family are up for at this point in their illness, then we sort of shift from a problem-focused treatment to a symptom-focused treatment at the end of life. So for pneumonia, what's a problem-focused treatment? Antibiotics. And for a pleural fusion, what's the problem-focused treatment? Thoracentesis, right. And so what's the symptom-focused treatment that we give typically for like that big umbrella term dyspnea at the end of life? Yeah, it's opiates, right? It's opiates. So once we sort of, but it's, it's not, and I don't want y'all to think it's sort of like, we just throw opiates at everybody who's dying. Or we, I, you know, the better palliative care hospice uh, providers will sort of take some time to kind of go through that algorithm, make sure this patient's dying. Is this an easily reversible problem? And sort of trying to, to sort of target the problem would actually be consistent with their goals, and it, and it might work, and it's really simple. But it sort of, if it doesn't fit any of those criteria, then you really should shift to a more symptom-based Treatment. And again, opiates are going to be our, our mainstay there. But after sort of going through that, that cognitive process, we just went through. That took like two minutes, right? So the general principle, right, for your opiates is going to be start low, go slow. I don't think that many of you in this room, I know I, at least speaking from my own experience, I didn't have much experience treat, treating people with opiates um, at the end of life. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't like start with like a six milligram push of morphine for this. That's going to feel uncomfortable. A lot of your nurses aren't going to want to do it. So start low, go slow. You can always add more. Um, we actually, in the in inpatient palliative care setting at Sinai, these are the doses that we start with. Um, patients and, and often people that are opiate tolerant need higher doses, and often people need higher doses than this, and we quickly escalate. But I promise you, these are the doses that we start with in people. Um, and your nurses will feel okay with this. Um, I have forgotten because I've been at Sinai so long and been around a lot of nurses that are very comfortable pushing opiates. Um, I, it was a helpful reminder now that I'm back at St. Louis Roosevelt and we had somebody who was dying recently and the goals are all very comfort oriented and I ordered uh, Dilaudid for the patient and I was super busy and got care called away and I looked at the, and like two hours later it had never been given. And I went to the nurse and I was like, oh my god, I just want to check on the patient. 
him like he's miserable. Why don't you? And she's like, I can't push that. He's fine. He's like, I'm going to kill him. And it was such a, it was like a good reminder to me that like there's a lot of education that still needs to happen on this issue. So I get it if you have problems. Um, I still have problems in my own environment. So if it doesn't work or have the desired effect, you can just repeat it every 15 minutes and you just increase by 50 to 100% until you get um, so I feel like this comes up a lot. People are like, well, wait, what about this drip issue? Like, doesn't everybody in healthcare get put on a drip, like a morphine drip? Isn't that a thing? Has anyone ever, has anyone here ever started a morphine drip? A few people. Has anyone here ever wondered about a morphine drip? I see some, no one has admitted. It. It's okay. No, so, so this comes up. So you don't ever have to do this, but I'll tell you um, a little secret in case this is something that you would like to do. Drips are really for your and nursing convenience. Drips, when we use them at the end of life, are because you could go to the bedside and dole us enough medicine to give the patient what they need, but we usually shift to drips when the amount that they need is really becoming so high that it just makes more sense for you and the nurse to have it go through an infusion. So when does that happen? So the morphine duration of action, when you give somebody oral or IV morphine, it lasts for four hours. All right, that's the duration. Generally speaking, obviously we plus minus a little bit, but it generally lasts for four hours. If we're going to start somebody on a drip, about how much an hour do you think we want to have in the drip before we're going to put somebody on? It's one. I'll just I'll feed it to you. This one's one. So it's one milligram an hour. We don't usually put people on like 0 0.2 milligram an hour morphine. So one milligram an hour, right? So if somebody needs more than four milligrams of morphine every four hours, we put them on a drip. Does that make sense? Right? So the idea that you would put somebody on a one milligram an hour drip when they come in when they have dyspnea, what's the problem with that? How many milligrams of morphine is that a day? How much? It's 24 milligrams of morphine a day, right? Come on, this is like, this is, I'm giving you these answers. Come on, these are, these are So like, that's a lot of morphine for somebody who's opiate naive. And our goal when we're giving opiates at the end of life is never to hasten someone's death. Right, there's the whole um, double effect principle. It's okay if you're sort of trying to relieve their symptoms and it hastens their death. But you really, you'll see that that rarely actually happens anyway. Um, but if we just sort of start somebody off right off the bat who's opiate naive and we're giving them morphine for dyspnea, and I started them on a one milligram an hour drip, we would sedate a lot of people and we probably wouldn't hasten a lot of death. So we don't actually start with those numbers, but we often get to them. So that's just a little, because I know that that's always in the back of people's heads. And then that's what that goes. And so breakthroughs, if you have somebody say it seems like they need this, and you have them on a one milligram an hour drip, the breakthrough dose is essentially half to equal the hourly dose. So if the nurse comes up to you and says, oh, you know, he's still having some dyspnea, you would give him in this situation, give him another injection of one milligram an hour. So we'll just do a little practice case. So you have somebody come in, they meet the description of the first, that case I just showed you, and their goals are all comfort oriented, but the family just kind of freaked out, and now they're here, and they, please, please help him. He's like having all this trouble breathing, he's miserable, he's suffering. So you go to that side, and you push a milligram, and then 20 minutes later, you go back, and you push two milligrams, and four milligrams, and he's comfortable. He's like comfortable now, and then you've given him seven milligrams, and then like four hours later, the nurse comes to you, and she says, he's asking for another dose again. Would it be appropriate to put this person on a drip? Right? Yeah. So they needed seven milligrams in four hours and they're needing another. So yeah, put this person on a drip and then your nurses, right, are free. They put the person on the drip and they can now do other things for that patient and whatever because that, that patient's going to be getting what they need. So the drip would be about one to two milligrams an hour, whatever you choose. Um, and the breakthrough dose would be one milligram.
from Q and R. Does that make sense? That's, that's, that's literally, that's the whole secret behind drips. Um, but I think it sort of comes up when people are intimidated about using opiates because they think that they've got to put on drip. So the other thing about opiates, there's like a million different opiates, there are a million different opiates to use. Um, the short answer is it really doesn't matter. The long, complicated answer is we generally avoid morphine and oxycodone and codeine in patients who have renal failure. Um, but at the very end of life, it really doesn't matter all that much. Um, and, and even the literature to, to sort of support that uh, distinction is, is not great. So um, they're all the same. It's just a matter of dosing. So I can control your pain or dyspnea with morphine or dilaudid. I just have to give you the right dose. Now we generally will, will shift to dilaudid or hydromorphone in patients uh, who need massive quantities of morphine because it's just easier for the nurses to administer um, it because the dilaudid is more potent so you can have more in the bag essentially. Um, but they're all the same, right? IV, oral, it's just a matter of dosing. So you can start with whatever one you feel the most comfortable with. So this always comes up, right? You're worried you're gonna kill somebody, your nurses, and then the family members like, I don't want you to give opiates, I don't want to be sedated. So in terms of the sedation issue, um, it is a challenge, it is a sort of a trade-off. If you give very, very small doses, and we're really just trying to target somebody's dyspnea, um, that it actually rarely happens. You know, I could give you a push of three milligrams of dilaudid right now, and I could cause all of you to become apneic and sedated. So I don't want to suggest that opiates can't do this, because they absolutely can and will. Um, but if given in small, appropriately, appropriately titrated doses, this, this really won't happen as much. This will be less of an issue. Uh, and so I always tell them, of course, most people are reassured by that. Um, but there are lots of studies on this issue. None of them are, the, the, the methodology isn't what we would want it to be. It never really is at the end of life. Um, but many studies showing that opiate use at the end of life doesn't seem to be really associated with length of survival in hospice patients. These are patients like on like 2,000 milligrams of work in a day, crazy amounts. Um, and it doesn't really seem to be strongly associated with length of survival. Um, and some, some great studies done in pal care units in Germany looking at what happens to respiratory rates and oxygenation, um, CO2 retention, when giving, again, appropriately uh, titrated amounts of opiates to people who have dyspnea or cancer, um, and finding really no effect on any of those, those variables, except for dyspnea and respiratory rate declining and the rest of those things staying the same. So it's safe to use, again, when done slowly um, and targeting symptoms. So other tools to consider, oxygen always comes up. This is what I'll say about oxygen. There's, there's one large randomized trial of, of patients who have um, some sort of life-limiting illness in the outpatient setting being randomized to oxygen versus air, and they found no benefit. They are not patients who are in the last hours to days or weeks of life that were in that study, but they were sort of dying patients. Um, they found no benefit, so the, the sort of the short answer is there's no benefit. Uh, and, and also there are some, a lot of studies suggesting that oxygen levels and dyspnea are like pretty discordant at the end of life. They're not really related to each other or associated um, in the ways they are for other people. That being said, if you want to put somebody on a nasal cannula and it helps them feel better, it's one of the least invasive things to do. So I think it's fine. It's not something I would sweat. Um, I do have issues with uh, non-rebreathers just sort of being slapped on and then like left there for two days because I think a lot of patients experience that really negatively. I think they feel like they're being smothered, and it really limits interaction between the patient and their family. 
Um, so not every readers that take issue, but if you want to do a give them a four liters for needle candle and see if it helps them, I think go for it. Um, and then this is one that's fascinating: uh, non-invasive ventilation. So uh, there are a few studies again there, and these are like small cohort studies. This one study in particular is 23 patients with cancer who came up with respiratory failure. And they got non-invasive ventilation, and about half of them um, recovered and walked out of the hospital. About half of them um, either got intubated or the non-invasive ventilation was taken off and they died. So the way I think about this is, think about it, we talked about dyspnea. Some of these people, maybe their goals are, you know, I don't want any invasive treatment, I don't want to be intubated, um, but gosh, I'd like a little bit more time with my family, a few more weeks. And they come in with dyspnea and you're thinking, you know what, like, this might be a CHF exacerbation, or this might be something that's easily reversible, and I'm just not sure yet. I need more time. Um, and the family is very clear, the patient's clear, they don't want to be intubated. And this is a reasonable thing to do while you're sorting through that information. Um, and sort of the other group that I think of, the other use for this at the end of life, is you need to talk to the family about goals of care, and so why you more time. So like beforehand, we used to have to like make these decisions in five minutes, intubate, not intubate, and I think those cases still exist, but actually with non-invasive ventilation, they're actually quite rare. You can put somebody on non-invasive ventilation, and you can take the family aside, and you can talk through a goals of care discussion. Um, so I actually think non-invasive ventilation can be great. The thing to just, that I, I, would, I would beg you to do is to prepare the family for, you know what, if, if, it, you know, if you're really hoping to get more time and I'm not quite sure why he's having a trouble breathing, I think this is a reasonable thing to try. But we should all agree what our goal is here. Um, our goal is that he's more awake and talkative and more comfortable. Um, so, so tomorrow, why don't we check on that? Or I want you to, to ask the inpatient team um, and have a discussion. And if you're not really seeing those improvements, we should make the decision, you should make the decision to take this off. So there should be some sort of goal in mind. It shouldn't just be like, oh, we'll throw the non-invasive ventilation on and this person will just die four days later you know, with a mass of blowing air on their face. Um, but I think it's, a, it's an appropriate uh, intervention to consider, again, when you're, when you're unsure. Some of these patients will recover. Those yes. patients, do they go to can they go to hospice with that? No, right? Not a base of ventilation. So, so we would send some patients to hospice with it, but there had to be clear goals in mind. Um, we're going to do this for 24 hours and severely. It's being used solely for comfort at this point. Um, every hospice is like a little bit different when it comes to that. Uh, if you have somebody that I say with sleep apnea, they're not going to tell them they can't use it at night, or COPD, for instance, and it's for comfort, um, right? So there are certain situations where they'll allow it, and others where they probably won't. So another another case, seven-year-old male, uh, Barnabite has found unresponsive, right? Care. Have you ever had this case before? Right. And this is like one of the, the few medical emergencies where you actually will have a dramatic shift in goals you know, in the ED, and then you're sort of dealing with a dying patient, and it's all on you, right? Um, and then the family comes up to you, like, he's got, oh, he's, like, making all these crazy sounds, it's like, you go to the bedside right here, you're know, like, that kind of sound, and they're like, he's suffering. And you're like, oh, no, I don't know what to say. So what's going on here? Is this patient dying? Yes. And um, what's going on? What do we call that, that sound? 
is the death rattle. So there's a couple different causes, but I think very commonly it's because people aren't able to swallow anymore and handle their secretions, so they pull in the oropharynx and it creates this awful, awful sound. Um, it's really something you typically see at the very end of life, so it's one of the signs to you that somebody's actually dying like hours to days when, they're, when you're hearing that, and that can be an important thing uh, to know. Uh, it's distressing to families, but not patients, because these patients are usually um, usually not awake anymore when they have this, and so uh, they're actually not, it doesn't seem like they're really experiencing the distress from it. Um, but, but families get really upset by this, so it's important to know what to do. Um, so what do you do? I think the most important thing to do is you can try some repositioning, but the most important thing is, I think, reassurance um, and telling the family, this is normal, this is not distressing to, to your loved one, this is a normal thing we expect to hear. Um, not to suction, because that's the temptation. The secretions are typically really far down. So I'll see people like jamming the, the yank cower in there. I'm like, oh God. So just, you know, so not doing that is important. And then if you want to try one of these medications, it's fine. Um, there's not great evidence supporting their use, but if somebody already has an IV and you want to give them 0.2 milligrams of glycopyrrole to see if it dries up their secretions, it's fine to do, um, but again, I think the most important thing to do is reassurance um, when you hear this. Okay, next case, six-year-old male advanced thiocellular carcinoma and cirrhosis. This is, this is actually literally a real case that I had, came into the ED. Um, the wife had her sunglasses on, she was a very angry person, and she said he doesn't want to eat anymore, and she was so angry at him, and he said, she keeps forcing me to eat, and it feels awful, and he, she said, I feel that. To death, and it was like pretty vicious their interaction. But um, has anyone ever seen this before? This is, has this ever come up? Yeah. So is he dying? I haven't really given you all the clues, but I'll just tell you yes. yes he is dying. Um, and this is this issue here, right? The anorexia dehydration issue. So really, really, really common at the end of life that people lose interest in food. It's normal. It's a normal part of the dying process. Right? And what do you think about that word start? Have you ever heard that family say, I feel like we're starving him to death? Right? I think that's probably one of the most um, common problems that we deal with in the pal care setting. Um, and one of the most difficult and most, I, I feel like I can have an easier conversation with the family about withholding and withdrawing um, in the mechanical ventilation than I can about artificial nutrition and hydration. I feel like it is the most difficult thing um, to talk about. Uh, and I had a family member get diagnosed with cancer uh, a year and a half ago, my mother-in-law, and she's actually doing really well now, but I thought that all these family members were totally crazy about this, like trying to force feed their family members, and then when she was diagnosed, I was like trying to force feed her all the time, and I was like inviting her over, and making all this food, and trying to force it on her, and I sending her food in the mail, sending her packets of food, and I was like, what am I doing, like, I'm, I'm one of these crazy people, and it was like the first time I got it, I have no idea what it is, but it is like when your loved one is sick or you know you think they have a life threat, it's like this basic human instinct is we want to feed them. Um, so I never really understood it until I had that experience. Uh, but this is again, this is normal, and it is actually not distressing the patient. So what we say when family members say like we're starving him to death, we say, you know, that word starvation would imply that he really wants food and we're not giving it to him. That's when I say when I think of someone starving, I think 
we're like withholding something. He doesn't want food. It's actually normal that he actually would not be interested in food. And when you have the flu, I bet you're not interested in eating food either because we feel terrible. Um, so just to remind people of that. Because again, this is the most distressing thing, I think, to families and less so to patients. Um, thirst and dry mouth actually are very common, though. And so what's the best way to treat them? Do someone just sponges or yeah, so you just take a, a, a moist sponge, and this is a great thing because family members want to participate in the care of their loved one. So you can say, oh yeah, so one of these like those green sponges in the ICU, right? So you give them a cup of water, get the sponge, and then you just moisten the inside of their mouth, um, and it, it feels great for the patient. The family actually has an active role in their care, um, and then um, lubrication on the lips. Right, is, is also really important, and you can alleviate all of that. And again, you can have the family members do that part, which they really love. So what about artificial hydration? So uh, one really great high-quality randomized trial on this issue, and they found it doesn't really extend life. Um, it was Statistically, there was no difference in the group that got IV fluids as the hospice population versus those who didn't. Um, although there was actually a difference of about a week. It was not statistically significant. This is what the sort of two best studies tell me about this issue, about IV fluids. That it probably improves some, some symptoms for some people. You all have those people that come in, you give them a couple liters of fluid, even when they're at the end of life and they kind of perk up a little bit. Um, so that certainly can happen, and that's, that's true for some people. And then I think in the same number of people, giving them the fluids actually causes worsening lower extremity edema, anasarca, pleural effusions, their dyspnea actually gets worse, they actually feel worse. So what I, what I tell family members is, um, yeah, you know, we can try this. They already have an IV. If they're in the ED, they probably already have an IV. Maybe we can try this. Um, you know, I'm worried that with IV fluids, we might actually solve one problem, but like create five others. That's generally what I see with IV fluids. But you know, it's not a very invasive thing. Let's try it for a day, see if he perks up. And if he doesn't, we should stop it. Um, so I think that's like a very simple way to tackle that issue. Artificial nutrition is a whole other ball of wax. Um, you really can't die at Mount Sinai without TPM or anything your beings. Um, I don't know how it works at NYU. Uh, it's less so at St. Louis Roosevelt. Uh, but that's a, whole, that's a whole separate issue that is beyond the scope of this talk. So uh, another case, 75-year-old female. She has metastatic breast cancer. Uh, she's enrolled in hospice. And uh, she starts to really go through this actively dying process. And the family calls 911. So, anyone ever seen that happen before? Right? That happens all the time. Um, these are her vital signs when she comes in, and the family comes to you and they say, "Is she going to die today? Should we should we tell her brother Bob to get on the plane right now from LA? Should he come right now? Is he is she going to die tonight? Has anyone ever had any sort of question like that? Right? What do you say? You say yes. So this gets to the issue right of predicting death, right? And it's really, really, really hard. I, I always tell families, I will give you an estimate. You should know ahead of time I'm wrong most of the time. And I'm not like just saying that, like joking. Like I really, I can follow these patients up. I'm in pal care. I'm wrong most of the time. Um, so it's really difficult. A great study of about 500 hospice patients who were for discharge home with hospice and 300, over 300 physicians that were at the time of discharge asked to give their estimate of what they thought this patient had in terms of length of survival. And um, how, and then, and they could be right if they were within like 30% of, of what the actual number was. Um, how often do you think they were right? 15%. Someone said 15, so it was about 20% of the time. Um, so we're, it's really, really, really hard. 
you get better at it the more you do this. Like, if, so if you end up doing palcare or hospice work and you see a lot of these patients, you will get better at it. Um, you also get better at it if you see the patient over and over again. So you kind of see what kind of trajectory they're on. So this is the thing, right? Knowing that you're going to be wrong most of the time. We never tell people, I think he's going to die tonight. I always tell, we always give ranges. So I think he's got hours, to, I think he's got minutes to hours, hours to days, days to weeks, weeks to months. And I will see somebody in the palcare unit and I'll say, I still think it's hours to days. And like seven days later, I'll be like, I still think it's hours to days. You know, like I can, all, all I can tell you is I think it's hours to days. Um, because that's really the best that, that I promised you that are the signs that suggest that's really the best you can do. Um, and so I think it's okay to say, I think it could be minutes to hours. So I think everybody should come. Um, you should know that you know, we're often wrong about this, and some people surprise me, and they, they die very, very quickly. And some people surprise me, and they live much longer than I expected. So I always give that qualifying statement, and we always give ranges. So don't say, um, I need to die tonight, because you'll be wrong, and then you'll be embarrassed. I mean, I, I, I had to learn that the hard way. I tell people, send them everybody in, he's dying tonight, and then like, I see him discharged from the hospital two weeks later. So <laughs> I, I, am not, I am not kidding you. I had a, I had a patient in a healthcare unit who had a blood pressure of 60 for a week. And I literally, every day, in a stat of 80%, every day, like, today is the day. Everyone should come in. And like a week later, I was like, obviously, just don't listen to anything I have to say at this point. Um, and then this sort of last thing comes up where they'll be like, well, what's going to happen? Like, is he just going to die? Like, what, what are they, like, they're like, they're very nervous, right? Because people used to die in the home, and everyone had a whole, like, breadth of experience to sort of pull, you know, pull from. And they would, they would know what dying looks like. I think people are very anxious about this because they don't often have any experience to draw on and they're very nervous about what to expect. Um, so there's a great study, it's old, but it's terrific. It was published in 1998. It's like one of the first studies I'm aware of that was prospectively done, 100 patients um, dying um, at home with hospice and carefully assessing them at different time periods for what their different symptom burden was, um, what life looked like for them. And this is one, uh, Figure that I think is, is kind of helpful for you to know this is light is awake, drowsy, very drowsy, or coma, right? And then you can just sort of see sort of globally as people get closer to death, they become sleepier and sleepier and drowsier, and they generally fall asleep, and you can tell them. So I think what's going to happen is as he gets closer to dying, he gets closer to death, he's going to get sleepier and sleepier. He's probably eventually going to fall asleep, and he's not going to wake up again. Right? And you can sort of see that that's generally what happens for a lot of patients. Um, and, um, and then you can sort of add on, his breathing might become a little bit irregular. He might start breathing really fast and then really slow and have pauses. And that's all normal. That's just a sign to us that he's getting closer and closer um, to dying. Right? And just giving people a little bit of that, it's like when they start to see those things, they're not panicking. They're like, okay, like I know that's all normal. I'm starting to see these patterns. They told me this would happen. Obviously, everybody is different, and not everyone's going to follow this, but a lot of your patients will. So, other issues that come up, right? Quiet room, in the ED, the book, uh, turn off your monitors. Uh, this is actually a pet peeve of mine, so pet peeve, right? I hate this, that people will be dying. The goals are comfort oriented and the alarms, like, you know, beeping constantly, it makes me crazy. Um, and then, where possible, involve hospice, pal care. I didn't know that somebody from the Haven was going to be here, so I found I found some pictures of the Haven online, right? So, I mean, y'all have an amazing resource here. I got to, I had the pleasure 
um, of spending a couple of days at the Haven during my palliative care fellowship, and it is really a very special place. Um, very, very special. So I don't know what the process is operationally from getting somebody from your ED to the Haven, but I think if you ever have any doubts about the quality of the care that they'll receive in that environment, you should go visit there if that's, if that's at all possible, because it really is a lovely, beautiful place. Um, it's the place that you would want to die if you were dying, right? You wouldn't want to die in your ED or probably an inpatient bed. You'd want your family to be able to sit in this lovely room um, and talk and hang out. It's really, it's very peaceful, um, and it's really conducive to people that are at this point in their life. Um, this is, if you want to kind of take it a step further, uh, people are, again, you're, now you're sort of talking to the family and they're flailing and you have extra time on your hands. We will often, uh, and they're like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. And we often say to families, you know, some people at this time are kind of like wondering, what do I say to this person? Um, and then I'm freaking out. And we say, you know, I don't know if they can hear you. Um, but some people have found it helpful to hear what other families um, thought, thought were like things that were good to say at this at this point. And and most people actually really want to hear like yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me. Um, and so these are the six things that we um, that we recommend that people say, right? Because we always say relationships are complicated and, and life is complicated and things happen and. Uh, we all have regrets, and so this is your opportunity, this is precious time, and you should say these things. I, I can't say them out loud because I always cry every time I say them, but, but you, should, you should tell. If you, if you, you know, and I'm like, when I'm deeply involved in a case and it's something I can relate to, I can't go there because I'll just start sobbing. But if it's somebody where I'm you know, less emotionally involved and I can give this the family members, you have no idea. To sort of get this guidance from you, it would be so unexpected. Um, and it will be so meaningful for them. And I promise you, when I ask people if they want this information, the vast majority actually say that they do. Because um, again, like very few of your families have a roadmap for this. So they're looking for you to you to, to give them that guidance. Uh, and that's, I'm going to end on that very sad note. <laughs> that is it.